or the canon and the doctrine of Scripture. And uh, so we're going to just finish that up uh, this morning. Hey, Wendy. Let me hand you out a couple of things. Oh, thank you, Janice. There's two things. Great. All right. Now, before we get started, and we'll do a brief review, let me, this is kind of silly bringing all these books in here, but let me at least bring, show you some in case anybody were interested in uh, reading. There's, there's actually even more we could look at, but if you all were interested more in about understanding the canon, transmission, and those kind of things, uh, these are very accessible books. In other words, they're not uh, overly detailed. They're written to the... Uh, to be understood, a layperson to give overview, but they're very, very good. One is by Neil Lightfoot, How We Got the Bible. Janice, I know sometimes you like to take these recommendations. Um, it's very helpful. Another one is by a guy named uh, Rene. I, I call it Paquet, but I'm sure that's wrong or Pachet. But anyway, it's called The Inspiration and the Authority of Scripture. So if y'all are interested, I can uh, pass these along to you. Another one, which is a little more detailed... Still uh, very accessible, but um, a little more detailed is The Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. Have you heard of these before? Okay. The Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, very helpful uh, there. And then one other one. This is, a, this is a good resource. I think he has a new one out. But it just it, basically it's helpful for there's a listing of uh, information and documents. It's by uh, Josh McDowell. You all heard of that name? It's called Evidence for Christianity. I think there's a new evidence for Christianity. Um, again, it, it has a helpful value by listing out a lot of the historical information and etc. That is uh, good for us, useful information, helpful to know, things to be prepared with. If you're interested in any of those, and, and actually if you want to go even deeper, we can. I've got some other recommendations and books I can show you. Excuse me, in my study that will help you to do that also. Uh, this we'll look at in just a moment. All right, I'm going to do a fly-through. I had a handout. Uh, I did not print any other ones out that was a review of inspiration and canonization. Excuse me. Um, so if you have that, look at it. If not, uh, then that's fine. Uh, let, me, let me just briefly cover what we did uh, last week. And so this is going to be a 30,000-foot flyover of what was already a high flyover of a subject, there's really a lot of detail that could uh, go into it, that uh, we could look at. The first is the canon, what is it? And basically, uh, we looked at the development, where the word came from, how it was used, but uh, it's basically the criteria by which a book is recognized as inspired. And it also stands for authoritative list of those writings recognized as given to the church by divine inspiration. It establishes the limits of inspired text. So the canon essentially says these are the books that God has gave us and no other books. That's essentially what it says. Um, we mentioned that the canon is essentially spiritual. By that it does not mean uh, existentialism where you know it becomes the word of God when it connects with me at some spiritual level. Uh, what was meant is that the canon is spiritually appraised. 1 Corinthians 2, um, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually appraised. It, it means then that it is given by the Spirit of God to the people of God, and to the people of God it comes with the power of God, and it, it rings with the truth of God, and so on. 
So that's what's meant by it, spiritual. So somebody who does not have the Spirit of God is not going to recognize the canon and is not going to experience its power, its spiritual power, because it's not connected to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. Uh, we mentioned that there are two views of the canon, essentially. Uh, that is, I mean, within what would be called the Christian church. Uh, one is that it's an authoritative collection of writings, and the other is that it's a collection of authoritative writings. Now, I guess you give the answer away by the introduction there, but which one, which one is correct? <laughs> is it an authoritative collection of writings? Can anybody explain that difference just maybe from things that we've talked about, an authoritative collection of writings or a collection of authoritative writings. Does anybody remember the difference there at all? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right, excellent. That's exactly it. So authoritative collection places the emphasis on the collecting body, in this case the Roman Catholic Church particularly, who, who uh, uh, hold that the authority lies in the church and then the scriptures get their authority uh, invested in them by the church. In other words, the church is the one who has the, the authority. Uh, whereas the biblical view is that it is a collection of authority of, of authoritative writings. In other words, the church recognized the authority in the writings that God gave. And so the process of canonization is the process by which the church came to recognize all of the inspired documents that God has given to his church. Um, that will come up a little bit later too, so I'm not going to spend time on that. Okay, a few quotes we looked at. Um, mentioned that the canon, the, the, the term did not develop until much after the New Testament, but the concept has been understood since the first inspired document. And we mentioned going back all the way to the Law of Moses and to the Prophets. We looked at that, a few of those verses. Again, this is all review. Some of the process by which uh, Scripture was recognized, it was, that it was written by a prophet, that it was authoritative, it was authentic, dynamic and it was received by God's people. Now we'll come back to another uh, that list again slightly modified uh, when we look at the New Testament canon. Uh, when was the Old Testament canon closed? We looked at the Council of Jamina, Jabna in 90 AD. We discussed that just briefly. Lots of writings. I mean, in fact, if you had, for example, that Josh McDowell and the evidence for Christianity, he would just have pages listed of some of the different other quotes. But uh, we mentioned here Josephus, uh, Josephus you're familiar with. Does everybody know who Josephus is? Who's heard that name? Who's not, has anybody not heard that name, Josephus? Anybody not heard it? Okay. What, what does, now say that again, Jerry? Right, right. The Bible is the center. Absolutely, uh, we we would hold that uh, wholeheartedly. That it's the authority that God has spoken to us in one place. That is the written word, and we we listen to Him there. Uh, the Old Testament. Uh, 
wait, wait, Josephus. Jo- Josephus was Jewish historian. Um, he really defected in the Jewish revolt uh, when, in the, uh, just before uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, or the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And he went over to the Romans. He was very friendly to the Romans, but he essentially, uh, writing to defend the Jews, although he would be considered a turncoat to some of them, but writing to defend the Jews, and he was from the Pharisaical party, uh, he essentially gave a history of the Jews and, and detailed. And we get a lot of our information from Josephus, so you'll hear that name a lot. Um, so anyway, he uh, is one of, one of the many voices that recognized, uh, there's the quote that we looked at last week, that Artaxerxes, that was around the 400s AD, that was, of course, the time uh, Malachi was written, that there was no prophet that spoke in Israel uh, after that time. That they, they did not have any canonical writings, any inspired writings. They would, of course, not have used the word canonical. All right, so are there, are there any questions there? So, so what are the two, who could just say it? Uh, here's a quiz. What are the two uh, perspectives on the canon as far as recognizing the canon? There is, they are an authoritative collection of writings, and what's the other one? A collection of authoritative writings, exactly. Um, who can describe the canon, just what, the, what is being referred to when we, when we talk about the canon? Just in a brief, very pithy kind of definition. It doesn't have to be quoted exactly, I'm not looking for that. I just want to see that the concept is understood. So what would we be talking about at the canon? I mentioned two things at the beginning. Um, so if somebody comes to you, they are just interested in the Christian faith, they, they, they don't really know anything, they've heard you're a Christian, and they're like, what, what is the canon? Uh, somebody mentioned the canon, what is that? And you tell them, uh, what do you tell them? I'll give you just a few seconds to think about that. What is the canon? What does that mean? I mean, is that like, you know, some Christian fortress where we've got a big gun pointed at the world and... You know, everybody who doesn't agree with us, we're going to shoot them. What does it mean, the Christian canon? Okay, that would be acceptable. That's good. Collection of writings. Those are just the books that the, were collected by the church, given by the Holy Spirit. Yep. Anybody want to add something to that or give another? Okay, yeah, that's good enough. Let me, let me just put this back up here. It's one, when we speak of the canon, we're speaking of, we're, we're inferring the criteria by which a book is recognized as inspired, and we're also referring to an authoritative list of those writings recognized as given to the church by divine inspiration. Okay. Now, again, this is, this is a flyby. I would, I mean, we could, we could spend a lot, a lot of time on a lot of these. So these are just, just some kind of, putting the, the thought there and uh, some of these issues and giving you at least something to uh, begin to think about. Uh, one, we mentioned, okay, what is the Apocrypha? Uh, the Apocrypha has the idea, the best, the meaning of the word, yeah. Oh, I am so sorry. I'm thinking everything that I'm showing you is up there. Please forgive me. There it is. That's much better. <laughs> no wonder y'all are looking at me. And when I said it was given away, I thought because it was up on my screen that you saw it on your screen. Uh, no wonder the blank stares. All right, well, here, let's do this. Um, I'm so sorry about that. Okay, let's just look at some of this. Okay, so here's what I was mentioning. It's criteria by which a book is recognized as inspired. Um, okay, just so you can see some of these. We mentioned that it's spiritually appraised. The authoritative collection of writings or collection of authoritative writings. 
Um, quote. Okay. So there it is. And that's the list. That it was written by a prophet, authoritative, authentic, dynamic, and received. And this was the other thing we were looking at. Liberal scholars, uh, the Jamina, Jamina, Jabna, 90 AD. Okay. Does anybody remember what the Council of uh, Jabna was about? 90? Who could give just a general? Okay. Uh, that, that is, uh, the reason I mention that is because within liberal scholarship who would deny the authority of Scripture, this is a, a, a council, if you could really even call it that, that was... Uh, that met around 90 AD. It was a council of Jews, and they, it's purported or it's argued by liberal scholars or was in the past as being a, a time when now that the temple is destroyed and the Jews had to uh, put forth their authoritative writings that here's where they decided what was going to be in the canon, in a nutshell. And so we've looked at that again in a little bit of detail uh, last week and say that, that it was not a council. They were not deciding what books to go in there. And this is, that theory, by the way, is, is becoming much weaker and less accepted as, this, as it becomes more clear what was going on. But, but that is something you will hear sometimes. Uh, that it was, they were not, it was an academic debate among rabbis uh, regarding the Song of Solomon's and uh, Ecclesiastes whether they were hands that, uh, books that make the hands uh, unclean. And so they were, there was a debate about that. It was an academic debate. It had nothing to do with what books uh, belonged in the canon. Again, you, we can, you can read more about that if you want. All right. With all that, this is where we really want to get to uh, today. Um, the Apocrypha. What is the Apocrypha? Now, the Apocrypha is... Uh, well, there's a quote. Here's, let me just... I mentioned this quote, the name given by Jerome, these are all of these, these slides uh, are in the handout that I gave. The name given by Jerome to a number of books, Jerome was around the 400s AD, you remember him in church history, was, was significant. Uh, the name given by Jerome to a number of books that in the, Septu- the L- y'all know what that stands for, the LXX, Does anybody, if you see that, okay, that's Roman numerals for 70, L50, and then plus uh, 20, 10, 10. Uh, the Septuagint, are placed among the canonical books of the Bible, but which, for evident reasons, do not belong to the sacred canon. That's succinct enough. Um, that's why I took that from the dictionary. So, uh, basically, the Apocrypha refers to books that were around in the, uh, among God's people. They were useful, and we'll mention that. There is some usefulness to them, uh, some of them. Uh, but they were recognized as not having the same authority as Scripture. They were not in the divine canon. They were not recognized as inspired books of God. Now, that does not mean, again, that there was nothing valuable in these books at all, but it does mean that they were not inspired. Now, uh, the, the main idea of the word, and it's still debated exactly what that term, I mean, that is hidden, but exactly how that was implied, whether it was a positive or negative, but... It was historically a negative word, basically showing those books that were outside of, of the canon. Now, these books uh, never gained universal acceptance by God's people. Some accepted them for questionable reasons, but by, by the most part, these books were, were staunchly opposed by God's people as, as not being in the canon, as recognized as not being in the canon. Uh, the issue has drawn certain confusion because in the 4th and 3rd centuries B.C., there was an existence of so-called two canons. Now, this is just put in there. This, 
Again, if you want to read about this, I can give you something that will go through all of the details and the arguments and list it out. I'm, I'm just mentioning this uh, to you, okay? Um, but just for, helpful to know, there was in the 4th to 3rd centuries BC an existence of what is so-called uh, two canons, the Alexandrian canon with an Egyptian origin and which contained the Apocrypha and on which the Septuagint is based. And then there was the Palestinian, Palestinian canon which did not contain the Apocrypha um, and it is that canon that's represented in our Old Testament text. Now, again, the reasons for rejecting the Alexandrian canon are clear, but they are too much to go into uh, for now. Uh, but essentially, the Apocrypha fails these tests, these books that were included. Um, one is they fail the text of orthodoxy. So, for example, you can find things. One, one that's mentioned here is prayer for the dead in 2 Maccabees 12, 45-46. Uh, several statements. Here's one mentioned, uh, Tobit 12, 9, works salvation. As a matter of fact, I even ran across, just skimming through some of these books this morning, another one, let's see if I can find it immediately, uh, that have these kind of, um, let's see, that have these kind of references. Okay, here's one. Actually, here, I just happened to turn to this one. This is from Tobit. Uh, a little with righteousness is better than much with unrighteousness. It is better to give alms than to lay up gold, for alms doth deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. Those that exercise alms and righteousness shall be filled with life, but they that sin are enemies of their own life. And so there's statements like that that are peppered uh, throughout these writings where it doesn't pass the test of orthodoxy. In other words, it doesn't agree with the rest of Scripture. Uh, at that time... Uh, being particularly the Old Testament. Uh, there are issues of historical reliability, which are clear. There's clear historical mistakes. And it fails the test of spiritual integrity. Spiritual integrity. One that's mentioned there is Judith helped by God and a lie. So Judith is praying to God, and in this prayer, she's uh, thanking God for helping her, basically, in successfully lying to her oppressors, the oppressors. Uh, which is, again, something that does not, we do not see uh, in Scripture. Now, let me just make a few other notes on this. Um, there are some who are, that are hinted at, books of the Apocrypha, Apocrypha, in the New Testament, but none are ever given divine status, such as, for example, Scripture says, or God says, or the Spirit says, or any of those uh, things. The New Testament quotes pagan poets. Is everybody aware of that? That pagan scriptures are quoted uh, in the New Testament. Let me give you just uh, one example here. You're familiar with them. Acts 17, 28. Uh, there are several places that this happens, but Acts 17, 28. Uh, Paul, speaking to Greek philosophers, says this. He says... For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Uh, being then children of God, we ought not to think of the divine natures like gold or silver. He's, he's quoting there from what is uh, Meander's comedy. It's a, it basically, he's a pagan writer. And, uh, uh, or excuse me, one of their poets, excuse me, that was for another reference. Uh, disregard that. Uh, 
1 Corinthians 15.33 is where Meander's comedy is quoted from. But the point is, is that he's quoting here from a pagan poet and he's affirming that statement as being a, a true statement and then he builds off that to make a point uh, to them in their culture. He's not affirming that poet as a spokesman for God, right? <laughs> That's not what he's doing. He's borrowing a line that contains a truth that he's using in his argument. So we see another example of that in Titus 1.12. And as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 33. Since I already uh, mentioned that, let me turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Uh, this is also done. He says there what he says, you see in, in quotes, Do not be deceived. Uh, bad company corrupts good morals. He's quoting there from a pagan uh, writer. He's quoting there, when these quotes are given, they're given as points of illustration, never as a divine endorsement of the work. In fact, uh, the Apocrypha is specifically quoted, first Enoch is quoted in Jude 14 through 15. Do you all remember that? Jude 14 through 15. So you're, so, so you're aware of these places. He says in Jude 14 through 15... It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, Now again, what he's doing, as with pagan poets, as with pagan literature, as with uh, writers of that age... Uh, he's using that as a point of illustration and he's saying this part is something that is true. He's not equating that with scripture, right? There's no, there's no introduction here. Uh, there's no uh, affirmation here of this work being uh, given the, the place on scripture. And nor was it by uh, the Jews. So the Apocrypha has never had general acceptance by the people of God as being canonical, um, Okay, again, they did carry some value to them, but they were not uh, inerrant and not accepted as being from God. So a footnote to this, uh, Jesus quotes from or alludes to almost every book in the Old Testament as divinely authoritative and refers to it as the word of God, but he never does so from the Apocrypha, which would again seem odd if it had the same inspired status. The point is this. Uh, The 39 books that are contained in our current Old Testament are those that have always been recognized as inspired, authoritative, and binding on the people of God and meticulously preserved through the ages. And what we'll look at next week is transmission of scriptures, the transmission of scriptures. Um, Here's a few other just interesting, I mean, uh, important thing just to put in your hat here. The books that were added, the Apocrypha were added. Does anybody know when was the Apocrypha added to the New Testament canon? Does anybody remember that? Does anybody know what just happened? Maybe a historical, historical trip. Uh, very good. Do you, uh, do you remember that or was it in your notes? You remembered it? All right, man, Mike's on the ball this morning. <laughs> yeah, 1546 at the Council of Trent. Now, what would be significant about the date 1546? Just think in term, broad terms of church history. What happened at the beginning part of the 1500s? Huh? The Reformation, right? Martin, Martin Luther nailed 
his 95 Thesis up on the door in Wittenberg. Uh, so the Council of Trent affirmed the Apocrypha, which were not in the canon uh, up until that point. The Council of Trent was essentially a response to the claims of the Reformation, reaffirming Catholic position in opposition to those points being brought by the Protestant reformers. Uh, that's when they included it. Why did they include the Apocrypha? Well, what are some of the things that we just mentioned? It includes passages for works, salvation, uh, prayers for the dead, and other things uh, too. Uh, so for them, they needed to give it. Now, again, why is that other thing important? Where does the canonical status come from? Is it inherent in the scriptures, or is it something invested into it by the church? Right, so you see where that makes a difference. If you view the church as having authority, then that's perfectly legitimate for them to all get together and say, hey, here's some other books, right? But if it's in the scriptures, then this church has no right to do that because the church yields and submits to what God has given, which is recognized by the people of God. Um, so that's, that's why those things are important, to have those categories in our head. Let me just list for you, I didn't put them up on a screen uh, Y'all might recognize some of the books of the, uh, or the books of the Apocrypha. Esdras, Tobit, Judith, Additions to Esther, Book of Wisdom, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, excuse me, also known as the Wisdom of the Son of Syriac. I can give you this if you're interested at all. This is just so you hear them. Baruch, Epistle of Jeremiah, Additions to Daniel, Maccabees 1 through 4, and the Prayer of Manasseh. Now, let me just make a little footnote here, too. As we get much of our historical information from Josephus, a lot of historical information from Josephus, so we get a lot of, a bulk of our historical information about the inter, what is called the intertestinal period, so the close of Malachi to the coming of Christ in the New Testament. A lot of that information about the Maccabean Revolt, historically what happened in that time, we get... From Maccabees, which each edition of Maccabees, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of Maccabees, there's a decreasing historical reliability. So 1st Maccabees is is really probably pretty accurate historically, and then it gets decreasingly so after that. But we get a lot of our information. So when we look at Daniel chapter 11, for example, where a lot of that information there up until the end, where we would uh, argue that he's referring to the Antichrist, the uh, uh, the last section there, uh, where he's talking about these things that are happening during the Maccabean Revolt. Those who know their God will rise up with strength. Uh, we get that information. We fill out those details because of Maccabees. So we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We say those are not canonical. They are helpful. They do have helpful things that are in them. So you, you need to be aware of that. You, you need to be aware of that. Any questions about that at all? Any, anything that's floating through your mind? Yeah, Wendy. Yes, yes. Well, there, yes. They can be read for historical purposes. So, for example, here's, a, here's another common example. Um, when, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, uh, there were other books found besides the Old Testament. There, there were many books that were recognized as having his spiritual value, uh, value to the people of God that did not contain the status of uh, 
divine inspiration. And so we see that even in the discovery. So there were other scrolls found there, but they were not. They were distinguished as being what, uh, apart from Scripture. It'd be kind of like if you know, somebody 2,000 years ago found writings and with it they found uh, you know, Calvin's Institutes or something like that. Uh, it would be similar, um, similar to that. Those books were floating around, obviously, but they were not recognized as being in the canon. But they had a different Bible that was similar to ours. Before that time? Before 1546? Yeah, they right, so they would have had those books sometimes contained that floated around them. They didn't all have those uh, contained with them, but there were certain uh, uh, collections of books that did have those there. But they, again, were not recognized as a part of the canon. So that really wasn't an issue, for example, in the Reformation. Now, we'll, we'll talk about that. That does need to be amended slightly, but, uh, but that wasn't an issue. Uh, that only became an issue after the Reformation and the Council of Trent affirmed those, but those were not recognized. I mean, that was not a problem. The Reformers weren't wrestling through that particularly. Um, so, yeah, the books that we have in our Bible were the ones that were recognized and that were used. Now, I say that needs to be amended because, for example, some of the Reformers did struggle with some of the books. Uh, Martin Luther, it's often mentioned, rejected the book of James as being inspired because of the section there on faith and works. But obviously, the issue there was his interpretation of what was being said there. It wasn't that there was a problem with James. But uh, while you can pick and choose quotes there, uh, I think it's probably the better understanding of Luther there is that he did, he, he did recognize it as being in the Bible, but it really frustrated him. And it's almost like he didn't want it to be. Um, so there were, there were some instances like that, but, but basically this was, not a, this was not an issue. Any other questions? I'll do my best to answer. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Janice. Mm-hmm. Because they were based off... I'm sorry. Right, right. They did, and... and and that's something that for King James-only people, a little inconvenient fact, uh, along with many others when we covered that King James-onlyism, that they like to uh, dismiss. Uh, exactly. Okay. Any other? Okay. Well, the New Testament canon. So let's go through the... We're going to, again, <clears throat> we're going to look at the handout on this. Like the Old Testament, uh, it was completed and possessed all the authority it would ever possess the minute the last book was written. Okay, again, like the Old Testament, it was a part of the canon, technically, essentially, again, we're being anachronistic. In other words, we're using a term that didn't come about till later and applying it to earlier documents. So if I say the, the canon in turn of the Old Testament, they didn't use the word canon. I'm using that word as far as recognized books that the people of God recognize as authoritative. Uh, but just as with the canon in the Old Testament, uh, as soon as the book was given and written, it, it had all the authority it was ever going to have. It was given by God to his people. The same with the New Testament. And we, we you know, danced around that issue a little bit when we looked at inspiration in the New Testament. Um, last book was written in about the 90s by the Apostle John. Uh, however, the process of universal recognition is generally broken down into three distinct phases. Now, you can look at your handout for that. Um, 
Now, we can't go through that in detail, but I would like to at least look at that. Uh, Ray, do you have an, uh, one of those handouts? I don't have one with me. I'd like to just look at it. Well, maybe just give me one of each, just in case. Okay, so if you look at the one where at the top it says canon, okay, if you look at that one, you'll see, okay, some of the things that we've talked about there. Then you see collection of writings. Do you all see that where it says collection of writings? And I wanted to say, again, I would really encourage you, uh, if, if you're at all, it's, this would be some helpful information to grab uh, one of these. Again, if you want to be a little more detailed, Bruce's book, Canon of Scripture, is uh, helpful. Um, you will work a little harder on that. But these two are very, very accessible, very particular. I really like them, um, would recommend them. One is How We Got the Bible by Neil Lightfoot. And the other one is, Renee. again, I'm butchering his name, Pache. The inspiration and authority of Scripture will cover those things in a, in a very succinct way. More than what we're, but more than what we're doing. A collection of New Testament writings. So then there was the period of 70 to 170 A.D. And let's, let's just look at this together. There was a gradual circulation and collection. One of the key figures here is Clement of Rome. Uh, he wrote an epistle to the Corinthian church. And let me, I'll just put a footnote here. If any of y'all were ever interested in reading some of these, I have all of them and translations of them. I would be more than happy to... Uh, let you borrow the books. Well, you can read through some of these uh, documents. You, uh, anyway, the Clement of Rome's epistle to the Corinthian church. In his epistle, he makes multiple references to Old Testament, New Testament scripture, affording them as equal status of authority. He clearly quotes from Matthew, Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, Romans. And, and when you read through, when he quotes from these books, he's quoting from them authoritatively. He's quoting, he's, he's referring to them as scripture. So remember, this is right at the close of the first century. Uh, this is a significant figure. First uh, Timothy, Titus, First Peter, James, and Colossians. As a matter of fact, it's been said and documented that if you were to take all of the scripture references and allusions from the early writers, uh, the patristic writers, then you could put together, uh, you could essentially put together and reformulate the, all of the New Testament and much of the Old uh, clearly, that was their authority. Other significant works, the Didache, very important Christian document. It was actually um, arguably early in the first century, probably around even the 60s, if I remember the early date correctly. That's one of the early dates for it. Um, the Epistle of Barnabas, so you can look at those, Clement's second letter. By the end of this period, so by 170 AD, all the Gospels and Paul's epistles were recognized. Only two, Second Peter remains as unnoticed, not really mentioned actually. Um, and also, the Old Testament canon has interpreted through its fulfillment in Jesus Christ was solidly in place as the basis of Christian preaching and teaching. Now, we'll come back to some of those statements. Uh, 170 to 303, the period where, re where the recognized canonical works begin to be clearly separated from the mass of religious literature. Remember, that was there were masses of other books around, but there was a clear delineation between what was given by divine inspiration and what were helpful spiritual books. But... But it became increasingly necessary to uh, make that distinction more clear. A uh, key document there, you'll hear this, the Muratorian Canon, approximately 170 AD, uh, which was one of the early list of books. Um, Origin, though not orthodox in all of his theological particulars was nonetheless a significant witness to the recognized canon of the New Testament. He lists 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, 
And though he expresses doubt on some, he does not exclude them canonical status. So he would have the attitude like similar to Luther to James. Uh, he also mentions Shepherd of Hermes, Didache, Epistle of Barnabas as a scripture, though with serious doubts. So he, there was some question in his mind, at least, uh, about those books. That does not mean that there was question to the church at large, there, but in him as a writer. Um, let's skip down. You can read through all of those. Let's skip down to three, just for time's sake. 303 to 397, period of formal ratification. Now let me ask you, what, what's significant about the change? Think, change? think in the broad terms of church history, if you can remember. What's significant, what happened significantly around the 300s AD? Well, yes, comes to an end. Constantine uh, is supposedly saved. There's highly doubtful whether he was genuinely converted, but nonetheless, he did have a Christian experience where he uh, accepted the Christian faith. And in 313, the Edict of Milan, have you all heard of that? Edict of Milan, that was where, that was the official document that ended persecution against the church, the Roman persecution. That was now an entrance into a new phase in church history. Um, up until that point, so you have to remember, while these writings are going around, while they're circulated, while they're being held, these are books that people were dying for. And I was very, we just don't have time, but there are just some wonderful historical examples of that and accounts of that, of people dying for these scriptures. So they are, these New Testament books. People were not dying for the Apocrypha and pseudographical works. Uh, these, they were dying for... Christ, but I mean holding on to their authority as Scripture. Uh, but you have to remember, so that's all going on. So there's, there's going to, there is a switch that takes place here around 300 uh, A.D. Period of formal ratification. You say, well, why couldn't you have formal ratification there? Well, it was ratified because these are the books that were being collected, passed down, copied, transmitted among the church. But the church was largely not in every area and it wasn't consistent. It wasn't like every Christian in every place was receiving the same persecution. But by and large, the church was being persecuted, sometimes very severely. And right here before the time of Constantine, the church was persecuted, underwent one of its most grievous persecutions under the emperor Diocletian. Uh, which was devastating. But it was at the end of that. So you have to remember, so there wasn't councils that they just had these Christian councils and such. That was not the environment of the church at that time. But after that, uh, it was an environment where that could take place. So this was a period of formal ratification. Here's some key figures in there. Uh, Eusebius, commissioned by Constantine to formulate an official canon. Uh, Now notice that, again... He's formulating this canon, Eusebius is, very soon after the end of the persecution of the church. So this canon that he's doing, is, is, it was there. He's recognizing it. He's putting together what was there to Constantine. That's, that's important to remember. Uh, he's uh, credited with dividing the discussion of canonicity into three categories, acknowledged, disputed, and heretical. So you can read through the rest of that. We, just, we don't have time to go through all of that. Um, Okay, that, that's worthy of a lot more discussion, but you can read through that on your own. Shoot questions down the road if you, if you have any. Um, notice also the motivation. Uh, that's, that's right after the, the three historical time periods. The motivation for the collection of the New Testament documents. Um, so you look at that on your own. Again, we, we don't have time to go through that. Uh, in any detail. I want to get to at least this last slide here. Uh, 
kind of frustrating to have to breeze through all that, but maybe we can come back to these issues later. Determining factors uh, was the author apostle, so very similar. It's uh, following uh, the Old Testament criteria. Was the author an apostle? This was really a preeminent test of inspiration. And it's not only was it written by apostle, but came with apostolic uh, verification. In other words, it was associated with apostolic authority. So what kind of example would I be thinking of? Was Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, was he an apostle? Do you remember who he's associated with, though? Peter, right? So that gospel is recognized as having derivatively apostolic authority uh, of Peter, though it was not actually penned by Peter. And there are other examples of that. So that's what's uh, meant by that statement. Does it claim inspiration? Is its message consistent with apostolic teaching? Did it come with the power of God? And was it generally accepted by the people of God? And again, ultimately, it was a witness of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the people of God. That's, again, the, the canon is essentially spiritual. In other words, it's confirmed by those who have the Spirit of God. And those who have the Spirit of God know the power of the writings that are in it. Now, we only have five minutes, and, this is, so, and I want to I wrap this up. Uh, the close of the canon. Let's look at that. The close of the canon. So let me give you and suggest to you three reasons... Uh, for the close of the canon. Three reasons for the close of the canon. These are in your notes. The first is a theological reason. Is a theological reason. Jude chapter 3. Essentially I'm reading what's on the screen which should be in your notes. God has delivered to us the faith which was once for all handed down for, to the saints. Uh, God has given to us everything necessary for life and for godliness. There is an authoritative witness to Christ in the New Testament. And God has given that to His people. He has given that to His people that has sustained them through persecution. He has given that to His people uh, by which He formed the church by the proclamation of that authoritative message of Christ uh, that the Holy Spirit convicted the hearts and brought God's people to saving faith uh, in Him. And it has not failed to do its work in His people. God has not failed to give the church for all ages everything that is necessary. Okay, there it is. For life and godliness. To say otherwise is to say that He supplied something for life and godliness to saints now that He did not supply to the Christians of the first century and beyond. Uh, it is to say then He measured out His supply of everything necessary for life and godliness to different ages, to different periods in the history of the life of the church, which is uh, directly against what Jude is confirming there in Jude chapter 3. Also, Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, and Peter's words in 2 Peter 1, 15 would support this. You know you're familiar with 2 Timothy. Uh, let me, 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1, 15, let me read that to you. And I will also be diligent, Peter says, writing to this body of believers, I also will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. He's at the end of his life. Here is an apostle who is soon to die. And he's writing to these people with an authority of an apostle saying that these are the things that you need to know. Um, the point behind that is that God had, through his representatives, the apostle, 
all the way to the last one, John, given his word to his church. Now, um, I don't know if it's in there, so I'm just going to mention it here briefly. Uh, John uh, chapter 16, verses, I think it's 14 to 16. I think those are the verses where, where Jesus is giving the promise to his disciples as they're leaving. I'm leaving. There's more things that I have to say to you. You can't handle it now, right? One, you wouldn't have understood it, understood it because the cross and the resurrection has taken place. They didn't have a context. The gospel wasn't completed in that sense yet. But the Spirit of God, he promises, is going to come. He's going to take from mine, and everything that of mine is of the Father's, he's going to give it to you. He's going to bring it to your remembrance. And so there was this coming ministry of the Holy Spirit that he was going to have specifically in his apostles by which his word, Christ would be giving his word, authoritative word, from heaven through his apostles to the church. That's Ephesians 2.20, built on the prophets and apostles, right? This is the foundation of the church. Christ is the cornerstone. Um, so let's put that there we gotta go I mean hurry up here the scriptural reason the formula in Revelation 22 18 through 19 uh, we'll just, let's look at this now the immediate reference is to the book of Revelation okay you understand that contextually his immediate reference is to the book of Revelation alright however when considered with the following facts it's best to apply this command to all of the revealed word of God such as one this is a similar warning and formula given in Deuteronomy 4.2 at the close of the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And subsequent to that, every prophetical work was essentially attested to by God and was a further application of all that God revealed in the law. In other words, that established the foundation for the Jewish nation and everything after that was referred back to uh, the law, either by application, affirmation, or... Uh, further explanation in terms of future uh, aspects. The content of the book spans the scope of God's redemptive history, ending in the eternal state, just as Scripture opens with an account beginning of Genesis, so it closes with an account of the end of the present world when all is summed up in Christ. In other words, it covers everything and puts a period at the end of the sentence. Uh, that's significant. And thirdly, it was the last inspired work and therefore the last book of the canon. John died after that. He was dead. There were no more apostles. There were only witnesses. And that's why, for example, such as with the letter of Clement and others, uh, they're referring now back. They're not claiming apostolic authority for their own and divine status. They're referring back to what was given. Last one, and we have to end here, the historical reason. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. In the Old Testament, it was through the prophets. In these last days, our current time, he has spoken to us in his son and by extension his apostles. Okay, here's the, the verse. Notice in John 14, 26. Uh, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. There's the verse I mentioned earlier in uh, John 16, 12 through 13. Uh, it's noteworthy that the last book was written at the death of the last apostle, an eyewitness to the ministry of Christ. It was necessary to be an eyewitness to Christ. When John died, that was it. That was it. Uh, since that time, no other book has been seriously attempted to be added to the recognized canon of Scripture. Also, with the death of John, there could no longer be any apostolic writings or validation of writings. And with the death of John, there were no longer the signs of the apostle. All of that ended, which again is another case against charismatic view of signs today, is all of that ended at the close of the canon. It decreased through the, uh, the New Testament period, but it closed at the canon. So what we have in our Bibles, we can trust is the word of God. 
That was a jet tour. I am sorry to go so fast. Uh, we can talk about more of these things down the road, and I can point you to some resources. Uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word, for giving us such a clear testimony, one that needs to be studied and examined and considered, but such a clear testimony to your uh, divine and authoritative word given to your people, the church. We thank you for that. May we study it, pour over it, and be uh, uh, models of what you said through 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, that like newborn babes, that we would long for the pure milk of your word, that by it we might grow in respect to salvation, that it would do its work in us as it has in your people from the history uh, since the first book that you ever gave to your people um, all the way up until uh, the close of the canon. It has been poured over, treasured, died for by your people, preserved ultimately by you and your Holy Spirit. Uh, It is your eternal word, and we thank you for it. And we, uh, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Lord Jesus. Amen.